Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey guys, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This is Julie Douglas, and not with us today is Robert Lamb, who unfortunately is uh, suffering from a really kind of horrendous case of laryngitis. So that is why you do not hear his dulcet tones today. So we thought we would rerun a favorite of ours for you guys. Uh, if you haven't heard it before, it is all about wind breaking. That's right, farts. The status of flatus is the actual name of this episode, and we hope that you guys enjoy it. But before we get into it and and we get into the the why and the how of farts, I want to mention that there have always been historically champions of windbreaking. Yes, I am talking about Jonathan Swift, a master of satire and the author of Gulliver's Travels. Well, he wrote an essay titled The Benefit of Farting Explained. This was published in 1722. And in it, he says it is translated into English at the request and for the use of the Lady Damp Fart or her Fart Shire by Obadiah Fizzle, groom of the stool to the princess of Ars Mini in Sardinia. Uh, there you go. And we also had Benjamin Franklin, who in 1781, when he found out that the Royal Academy at Brussels was requesting a scientific essay and would award prizes for the best papers, he said, hey, here's an essay urging the Academy to discover some drug wholesome and not disagreeable to be mixed with our common food or sauces that shall render the natural discharges of wind from our bodies not only inoffensive but agreeable as perfumes. All right, folks, I think that's evidence enough that we've been thinking about this topic for a long time and that people have been uh, rethinking it in terms of it being not so bad of a thing. It's pretty natural, right? And according to Dr. Patricia Raymond, she's an assistant professor of clinical and internal medicine at Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk. She says, if you pass gas, in most cases, you're eating more healthfully than your friends who aren't passing gas, or at least as much, I suppose. And she says that it should be a badge of honor. So wind break on, my friends. Wind break on. Julie, what does a fire-breathing dragon have to do with the human digestion system? A lot, it turns out. In yes. fact, it has a lot to do with gas and belching. And you guys know that we, we promised that we would roll out an episode about flatus, about gas, the toots, parts, you name it. Yes, we promised. It was a, like a blood oath to our listeners <laughs> that we would do a fart episode for that, everyone. That no one asked for, by the way. No, Well, no one ever asked for it. Um, no. But it happens, and uh, so here it is—an entire episode devoted to the uh, the interesting science of um, of uh, cutting one, as it were. You, you said it with a question mark. I think it's no, it, no. It's definitely interesting science. I think it comes down to the individual listener. I mean, what is, what is your individual relationship with gas? And it, are, are you the type of person who is repelled enough to where no amount of interesting science is really going to make you respect uh, flatus? Uh, in any way, or, you, or do you, are you already totally on board? And in science, the coding of science can only make flatus all the more exciting. My feeling is that everybody does it, so everybody should have an interest in it. Well, everybody does it, but people do it to different degrees. And people do it with, with varying degrees of uh, pride or, or, or disgrace. Well, as, as I've shared before, I come from a very scatological family, so mm-hmm. this is a topic that has been plumbed in the family. I'm not scared to talk about it, and uh, I, I feel like there's lots of really great information here. 
Uh, in particular, this idea of this fire-breathing dragon. Mm-hmm. And this is fascinating to me. This was in Mary Rich's Gulp. She spoke with a herpetologist, Stephen Secor, who became fixated on the question of why a python or a boa um, has an unusually large sesum. Okay, so a sesum is like this little digestive pouch. It's near the colon. Mm-hmm. And normally you see it in plant-eating animals. And so he became obsessed with it. Why? Why does a python have this? So he tried to figure out the role of the sesum, uh, whether or not it was just there to break down the plant material and the animal that the python had just ingested. Um, and he began to actually measure the amount of hydrogen coming out of a python, like what it was exhaling after it was um, given a bunch of rats to eat. Okay, so he did that with something called a chromatograph, and that measured the amount of hydrogen. All right. What he actually found out, though, was that the amount of hydrogen that was being exhaled by these creatures was enormous. You know, think mm. about this. Hydrogen, 4% concentration is flammable. Yes. These guys and gals were exhaling something about like 10%. Okay, so what does any of this have to do with belching or gas or flatus? Well, it turns out Secor has this really great theory that early man would stumble across, say, a python that had just, uh, or was in the middle of digesting a gazelle. Mm-hmm. And so, as you know, the python would be useless in trying to defend itself. Correct, yeah. Right. Easy it, food. It's just eating this huge meal, bloated. It's not going to immediately run off. Yeah. And it can't, doesn't have room for another one. Right, so early man says, ah, easy food. I've got dinner tonight. I have two things for dinner tonight, right? Yeah. I think that uh, Mary Rich had described it as Neanderthal turduncan. <laughs> Okay, so early man or woman hauls us off to a campsite. There's a fire. Someone is being, you know, joyful, and they begin to say, step on this python's head, or uh, they kick it. And what happens? A huge flood of this hydrogen just rolls out of the mouth, ah. meets the fire, ah. and then... And there you have a, a fire-breathing reptile. Yeah. yeah. So, Secor says, think about the thousands and thousands of years of these tales of bringing down a fire-breathing giant yeah. to your campsite. Because I could see, on one hand, someone could be like, whoa, that thing can can breathe fire. I was really, I was, I was really lucky that I didn't get toasted back there. Or they'd see what happened and they'd realize, well, this thing doesn't actually breathe fire, but it sure did look like it. And I'm going to claim that it does because I look all the more awesome for having uh, killed it, slayed it. Right. And if fast forward, you know, 50,000 years to uh, modern humans and eight-year-olds all around campfires trying to light their farts, right? <laughs> there, we have a long tradition of this relationship with gas and man. Yeah. Anybody who's read uh, Mary Roach's Packing for Mars book about uh, the space program and human space exploration uh, knows that there's a, there's a lot of uh, scatological content in here because you're talking about sending humans and their digestive systems up into a strange environment that doesn't necessarily play by the rules and at the very least is contained within a very small space. And inevitably, you have astronauts that are going to pass gas. And uh, I, I believe it was uh, measured out to be like three Coke cans worth of, worth of gas mm-hmm. is, uh, is coming out. So there were a couple of uh, interesting bits there um, in, involving NASA research. One was um, a quest uh, by um, uh, Edwin Murphy uh, in an attempt to, to find uh, what, what the ideal fart profile for an astronaut would be. Sure. Um, and basically, they wanted little or no methane or hydrogen, because as we just touched on, hydrogen is explosive, and methane uh, is is not desirable either. But in his work, this guy Murphy had apparently encountered one ideal astronaut candidate, 
and, and this is the quote, of special interest for further research was the subject who produced essentially no flatus on 100 grams dry uh, weight of beans, as opposed to the average gut, which will, during a peak of flatulence period, five to six hours post-bean consumption, pass anywhere from one to almost three cups of flatus per hour. So... Uh, that is particularly interesting, uh, interesting, not only because NASA, you know, wants that ideal fart profile for an, an astronaut or, mm-hmm. or that, you know, you would, uh, given the chance, but that there are individuals that are almost non-farters, which is interesting. It is amazing to yeah. me, uh, because, I mean, presumably, again, everybody does this. And I do think it's very kind of NASA, by the way, to try to recruit people who don't do it so much. Mm-hmm. Because as we discussed in our Emotions in, in Space episode, it can get dicey up there. And if you're next to someone who keeps putt-putting, you know, for six months straight, that, that can make uh, things very tense. So let's talk about a fart. What is it? Well, uh, basically, the act of farting, of course, is the means by which the body rids the colon of unwanted gas and by virtue of that unwanted pressure. You have this gas that builds up. And uh, the average person releases between 500 and 2,000 milliliters of this per day. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, what does it consist of? Well, about 99% of it is carbon dioxide, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, and methane, and again, varying degrees of that depending on the particular fart profile. Yeah, because some people don't produce methane. Correct. Right? I think yeah. it's like only one third of us produce methane. Mm-hmm. Yep, and most of these gases are either swallowed inadvertently when you're eating your food mm-hmm. or released from the food as it is digested. And uh, it's amazing because when it's in your body, it is odorless, and we don't think of it as being odorless, right? right? And the other key thing that 99% of the ingredients that I just listed, mm-hmm. that 99% is odorless. All the hydrogen, the methane, the oxygen, all of it. That is not the odor-producing content. It is that 1% that is responsible for the smell. Yeah, we'll get to that 1% in a bit. Yeah. It's been such a political term these days, 1%, <laughs> that it's kind of funny. To- it's 1% that's stinking up the whole system. Exactly. Um, so, as you had mentioned, yeah, we do expel quite a bit of it. But the man who inspired really thoughtful study of how much we expel, and even... Excessive gas is a man who, in 1976, complained of a five-year epic bout of the toots. He <laughs> um, he contacted gastroenterologist Michael Levitt, and in order to study the man, Levitt had to create a baseline of normal flatus output. So, or flatus, I should say. He recruited volunteers to keep flatographic logs <laughs> logs of gas activity. Uh, recording every stirring and every output. He prefers that, actually. But he did, and others have relied on um, studies that use a rectal tube in collection syringes to determine average output. That is ye old way of trying to figure out how much people are expelling. The collection tube. So basically the, um, the farting in a jar scenario. Yeah, but a little bit more foolproof and okay. a lot more going on. And the syringe is there just to extract the molecules and then to, to figure out what sort of molecules are in there. Um, these days, hydrogen output is measured in the breath because a fixed percentage of hydrogen produced in the colon is absorbed into the blood. And it, when it reaches the lungs, it's exhaled. Now, what he found was that this man was passing gas 34 to 42 times a day. Okay, the baseline average here of of the human who doesn't have any lactose intolerance problems is about 14 to 20 times a day, hmm. in case you're wondering. So the problem that they 
finally figured out is that he was lactose intolerant. Okay. And as we learned before, lactose does not get broken down. For some people in the digest, or excuse me, in the small intestines, hangs out in the colon, and then you have other bacteria which are breaking that down, and then you've got the waste product of that bacteria, and you've got a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of hydrogen being produced there. Yes. Of course, we are talking about humans as a whole in regards to uh, to, to flatus, but uh, you can't help but get into gender scenarios when you start thinking about it. In fact, one of the articles that we were looking at, um, uh, the the, art, the author made a point of of saying that men as as a whole, and she's really generalizing here and painting with a very broad brush, mm-hmm. uh, and I scold her for it, uh, that all men uh, are just enthusiastic about their gas. And just love it and crave it and, and laugh at it all the time. Bottle it. Yeah, and <laughs> bottle it for like, I, I am not one of those men. Like maybe that is the more baseline, um, relationship between man and fart, but I, I, for my own self, I, I don't in, engage that style of humor for the most part. I will laugh at a fart joke mm-hmm. if it is well crafted, um, or in some way, uh, you know, insightful. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been, uh, occasionally they'll get me. Like, for instance, there was a Sarah Silverman show episode that was very uh, fart heavy. Yeah, um, she's, she likes the farts. Yeah, and, and occasionally that will work on me. If it's, if it's the right fart joke. But as a whole, I, I do not, I'm more of a, a stereotypical, if you're gonna go with these stereotypes, I'm more of a stereotypical, uh, woman when it comes to fart gags and, and self gas production than a stereotypical man. Okay, so what I'm hearing is that you don't have a cellar full of, jarred farts. No, I do not. Okay. All right. This is good. Um, and it's interesting that you bring out the stereotypes because, uh, you know, if this were the Victorian age, we would say, oh, well, women just don't produce gas at all. Yes. Right? Yeah. It wouldn't even be a question. But we do have data on it. And it turns out that uh, women have or, or seem to be expelling more gas than, than men huh. as measured by the hydrogen exhaled. But Mary Roach questions this and, and says... In her book, could it be that the suppression of gas could lead to a higher input of hydrogen exhalation? So maybe if, if you're going with the stereotypical, um, I almost don't want to say stereotypical female, but let's say, let's go with, if you're going with a, a fart avoidant person mm-hmm. like myself, mm-hmm. then they are going to be less impl- inclined to just let it rip whenever the mood hits them. Right. So if you suppress it, then you're going to absorb more of it through your bloodstream. Okay. And then you're going to exhale more. So That's the oh, idea so in a way you're kind of yeah. reversing it and farting into your body, yeah, into just, your bloodstream. You're just breath farting. Oh, okay. Right. And that makes it really a lovely thought, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. It does. Uh, think about that next time you, you give your significant other a nice little kiss. Yeah. I, you know, I, 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 do, I should add one point about, about ladies and farting. I did work at a newspaper once, and an individual in the front office was terminated for engaging in a farting contest with a with a with a customer, it was uh, it was but quite I don't a scandal. Understand? It seems like it was mutual farting. So I guess it was just like, hey, this is a we're going to make an example of you. We just don't uh, fart with a customer. Maybe you know there could have been some other politics involved, or maybe it was just kind of this unwritten rule where if your customer comes in and celebrates uh, his or her farts, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But then you are not supposed to then engage with them in a contest of farts or. You know, it's, it's kind of like it's, it's okay if the, the, the customer uses foul language to a point, but you're then not supposed to engage them in that kind of behavior, I guess. Or I maybe you're, maybe she showed him up. Maybe she shamed him. 
and they lost a customer because of it. Was this a gastroenterology office? No, this was the newspaper. <laughs> With very, we didn't even have a a, a flatus uh, section, you know, just business and sports. Yeah, yeah. I, I I don't know that I can recover from that story. I feel like I need time to think about that and chuckle. <laughs> but we must go on, so I'm just going to chuckle about that later. Um, all right, so let's talk about this 1%. Yes. Or should we take a break? Uh, yeah, let's take a break. Why not? When we come back, we will discuss the 1% of the fart that is responsible for the smell. Uh, we'll talk about extraordinary cases of flatus. We'll talk about people who have elevated um, passing gas to an art form. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, the big question, if you're in microgravity, can you propel yourself across a spaceship just by virtue of your own uh, flatus? All right, we're back. So, as we've discussed, 99% of flatus is carbon dioxide, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, and methane. And uh, these are coming from stuff that uh, either gases that are inadvertently swallowed or it's released from the food as we're digesting it. But none of it produces the signature odors, and it varies, certainly, as we can all attest to. Uh, none of these uh, elements contribute to the odor. It's just a tiny 1% that makes uh, the gas so foul. That's right. That creates that singular bouquet of smell. Uh, microbes really live, for the most part, in the colon, where they attack and consume undigested food and, in turn, generate their own waste products. So in the case of microorganisms, waste usually means gas. And in the case of these microorganisms, that gas can be the really ripe stuff, usually molecules containing sulfur, like dimethyl sulfide, and methanethyl. Uh, these are waste products that ferment and they build up to a sufficient level and then they're released with the rest of the gas in the bowels. And by the way, we talked about this before, the birth of a fart happens when uh, your stretch receptors um, in your colon send a signal to your brain, hey, I'm having some discomfort, Mm -hmm. and then the sphincter is loosened up and... And, and the message may be, when you get a chance, please do something about this. Or True. it may be, this is really important, so the next time you even have like a heavy thought in the back of your head, um, we're going to just go ahead and let it go. <laughs> even a heavy, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. The brain will sit there and respond and say, yeah. okay, now you got to tamp it down. Sorry, sphincter. Yeah. Or, yep, we're overloaded here. All right, so uh, what brave soul figured out the scent profile of Flatus? Well, the same Michael Levitt who helped to determine the output of Flatus also studies the qualities of, of gas, these smell profiles. He recruited volunteers to detect the three main elements of a fart. So hydrogen sulfide, which is described as the scent of rotten eggs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Methyl, that is described as rotting vegetation. And dimethyl sulfide, which is oddly described as sweet. Hmm. Yes. So he didn't do this as a cruel joke. I mean, he wasn't just trying to, you know, terrorize people with smells. He wanted to see if the noxiousness of the scent would correlate with the combined concentrations of these three types of sulfur gases, and it did. Hmm. So the best part of this, all this information, is he took the data and he reverse-engineered a fart (laughs) (laughs) so he could... Use the combined concentrations in other scenarios. Would would it be safe to call this a Franken fart? 
Yes, yes. it okay. would be. Absolutely. Um, it's a Frankenfart, and he wanted to figure out uh, the absorptive properties of charcoal underpants or seat pads, which, by the way, is of interest to the airline industry. Oh, yeah. Which makes sense, right? I think yeah. that I say go airline industry, put charcoal in those seat pads. <laughs> I, I think Any degree to which you can yeah, cut down on the... Uh, on the amount of flatus in that enclosed space on a long flight, the better. Yeah, exactly. And speaking of a long flight or a spacewalk, uh, NASA actually has used filters in the air circulation in spacesuits mm-hmm. with charcoal uh, to help bind sulfur and then prevent the astronauts from getting drive-by farted every time the air is recirculated. Yeah, because if they build up enough, a long enough spacewalk, then fart madness ensues. It, no. I've heard about <laughs> fart madness. No, no, it is interesting. There are a lot of... Um, I, I was uh, looking on Snopes to see if there were any particular um, urban legends related to, um, to farting of note. And one of them was uh, this bit that occasionally circulates in emails about a man who, um, who died because he farted under the covers and, uh, and had the covers up over his head. Uh, but that's just complete malarkey. That's so. just a Dutch oven. Yes. Yeah, so, so, yeah. So death by, by death by, by Dutch oven, not really a thing. Yeah. And you can't. Try to, I mean, just for fun, Dutch oven astronauts, right? No, though. I mean, they go through enough in the training. I'm sure they were like, you know, after you've been in that spinny thing uh, long yeah. enough, then I mean, we've all seen the right stuff. They they went through a lot of, uh, of horrible things uh, to to prove themselves and to and to you know to get their bodies in shape and prepare themselves for this yeah. uh, this experience in orbit. So, and keep in mind that the air in their spacesuits is actually recirculated three times a minute. So, uh, now. Another interesting bit from uh, Mary Roach's book, Packing for Mars, she talked to an astronaut by the name of Roger Crouch, and he was particularly interested in the idea of propelling yourself through a microgravity environment, uh, like aboard the space station, uh, via your own farts. And uh, he said uh, that the mass and velocity of the expelled gas is very small compared to the mass of the human body. So he tested it out, uh, found that it produced no real effect, though he did uh, he did have this theory that the underpants... And the pants might be um, prohibiting the expulsion of gas, mm-hmm. and so he. But he did not get to test this naked. Uh, but he, he apparently has lingering thoughts that uh, that nude farting in microgravity would potentially uh, give you at least a little push across the cabin. Yeah, that really is not going to win the hearts and minds of your fellow <laughs> astronauts in yeah. space if you just drop trow. And then try I'm, to propel yourself with mm-hmm. your own farts. Can you imagine the the dude who's doing like the crying in space videos and and all the different viral videos? Mm-hmm. Uh, Hadfi- from, Colonel Hadfield. Yeah, mm-hmm. I wonder. I, I wonder if he's on board for this. That's going to be a, a big shock when that when that YouTube video rolls out. That might be the one that never really makes it to yeah. YouTube, right? So, though, if you were going to do that experiment without underpants and really mm-hmm. truly test it, you would want to eat the gassiest inducing foods that you could. And it turns out that the most eruptive edibles are beans, carrots, raisins, bananas, which is odd to me, onions, not odd, milk and milk products. For hmm. the very reasons that we talked before about milk being hard to digest and break down, as opposed to something like, um, let's say, meat, fish, grapes, berries. These are these have the least amount of complex carbohydrates. It's it's this uh, this really damning conundrum uh, that that I that I have encountered, uh, and that I think a number of people encountered. That the the healthier that you try to eat, mm-hmm. you know, you're trying you're trying to eat all these vegetables and these whole grains and you know, and lentils and beans, and it's just it's making you gassier, and you feel like you're being punished 
for this diet. Uh, Dr. Robert Lustig even put it this way. He said, in life, you have two choices. It's either fat or fart. <laughs> so, yeah, it's true. Like if you were to radically change your diet from, say, a meat and a very little um, vegetable mm-hmm. diet to grains and vegetables, you would really need to set aside a couple of days to transition into yeah. that. I kid you not. Well, there's uh, that great uh, Portlandia sketch where they go to the uh, the restaurant that has the raw food. It's like an mm-hmm. all raw food place, and they actually have a a a, a flatus uh, patio with fans. The fart you know, patio. The fart patio. That yeah. is just one of my favorite things. One of those <laughs> that that clip is just great because it's not hearty har laugh laugh, but it kind of speaks to that whole experience when you do go to a raw foods restaurant or a vegan restaurant. Yeah. And the the result of that afterwards, they just kind of brought it more to the forefront. Yeah, it's it's a cle- it's a clever bit of uh, of parody there and uh, and and commentary. So that's a, that is a a fart gag that I at least chuckled at. Sure, because really, when you get down to it, every restaurant should have a fart patio. <laughs> now, as we mentioned before, you you have a very rare individual, like the the individual that uh, NASA uncovered, who barely farted at all. Just one all, person in the world. <laughs> the one person, this, the, a mutant that, that barely produces any flatus. Uh, but then there is a, there's another side to that coin as well. There are the, the super farters, the, the extraordinary uh, flatulent individuals that, uh, that, that make life so interesting. There's this thought that some people have types of bacteria that produce more sulfur than other people. So that could be part of it. Diet is certainly part of it. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, as we mentioned earlier, some people are going to have different concentrations of hydrogen and methane. So some people are going to be more explosive, which is, uh, and I feel like we've discussed this before, but it's it's more of a serious issue when there is some sort of uh, surgical procedure going on, uh, yeah. w- uh, you know, with the colon, uh, in which you're going to have to cauterize wounds with a heat element. Mm-hmm. That heat element plus hydrogen and methane that's built up that can have literally an explosive reaction, which is not good for anybody involved in that procedure. Now, I believe there's an Ig Nobel Prize that was given out for yes. this, right? Yeah, um, that's where we discussed it before. But yeah. we say, and normally we say it's just it's. Really, very funny stuff. But this one yes. um, study was very serious. It was like, you know what? If if you are doing this procedure on someone, if someone has a polyp and you're removing it, mm-hmm. uh, you don't want them to explode and die. Right. Uh, so that's that's one of the things that doctors have been really cognizant of. And these days, they actually pipe in a little air um, mm-hmm. and air that doesn't have um, flammable carbon dioxide as well to try to dilute any methane or hydrogen that might be left over. Although, for anybody who's gone to the gastroenterologist and, and had one of these procedures like a colonoscopy, then you know that there's a lot of prep work yeah. ahead of time to try to remove anything that might antagonize or create a spark yes. in your rectum. Another aspect of flatus in, in the medical community is that it can actually be used as a disease fighter. Really? Sort of. I mean, it's more like a canary in the coal mine. So uh, doctors can actually identify tough-to-spot viral or bacterial infections of the gut in someone's gas. Huh. So what they do is they just perform this test where they collect a stool sample and then they try to take the gases. Um, they extract those gases from a smart needle and then they figure out the flatus molecules and the machine then will analyze these molecules and tell you what the infection is. Pretty cool. That is pretty cool. When discussing the various um, smell uh, profiles of, uh, of human flatus uh, and, and ultimately human waste, uh, I, I keep coming back to horse excrement uh, because uh, 
really, if you've smelled horse excrement, it's really the best excrement out there. You know, like if, if you had to be around a bunch of poop all mm-hmm. day, it, it's really hard to go wrong with horse. Okay, good to know. Yeah. Or you used to, you used to work at a zoo. So you know that there, there were various odors related to different, different animals, uh, leavings, and some of them were, were more pleasant than others. Well, yeah, it was funny because I worked in the administrative building, mm-hmm. but the keepers would come in. And they had all sorts of smell molecules stuck yeah. to their bodies. So mm-hmm. it, they might have been working with the zebras that day. Who knows? But they passed by the elephants, and that took it all down. Yeah, so the elephant's not a good smell profile. Yeah, no. Okay. But the horse, the horse, I think, is a good, a good smell profile. So what do you think about the flatus artists? Ah, uh, yes. Um, do you think they're even concerned with the scent profile? Well, it's it's interesting because um, first of all, I should I should back up and say that I was not aware of this until uh, about a year ago. I was uh, recovering from wisdom tooth removal, and I was uh, I was on pain pills, and I was taking I was reading the book Madeline is Sleeping by uh, Sarah Shunlin Bynum, which is a very dreamy book anyway. Mm-hmm. It's like a dream within a dream with all the surreal stuff happening, and then on top of that, I was a little loopy. Um, from everything else that was going on. But one of the characters that shows up is a fart uh, artist, mm-hmm. a, or a fartist, uh, if you will, or a um, flatist, or a flatuist. But not a flautist. Not a flautist. That's, uh, that's, something, that's something different entirely. But um, it, it turns out there's one individual that was of particular note, and it was, this was a Frenchman, whose real name was uh, Joseph Pugel, uh, lived 1857 through 1945, but his stage name was Le Petomaine. Uh, and he was known for having remarkable control over his abdominal muscles, and uh, he seemed to be able to just fart at will, just nonstop, just well beyond the three Coke cans of flatus that any normal individual could uh, could muster. But uh, there was a secret uh, to what he could actually do. Um, he uh, he had again phenomenal control over. Uh, the muscles down there, particularly the anal sphincter muscles, mm-hmm. and he could actually inhale air through the yeah. sphincter, mm-hmm. oh, and then release it. So it wasn't that he was releasing gas that was built up as part of this natural uh, farting process that we've discussed in mm-hmm. this episode. Rather, he was inhaling air into the rectum and then releasing it again. Wow! So we talked about reverse feeding. Yeah. In our last podcast. Reverse for last breathing episode. in a way. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's it's kind of like if you've ever been, a, generally you'll occasionally encounter a kid who's doing this, where they'll burp over and over mm-hmm. again because they're inhaling the air and then they're burping, yeah. inhaling the air and then burping. He was doing the same thing, but with his bottom. I would love to tell some stories about my family, but I don't think that, that would be <laughs> correct. Uh, all I can say is that I think maybe in past generations we've had some fartists. Excellent. Uh, so anyway, on that note... We should probably bring closure to this. Yes. Let's uh, let's call over the robot. Oh, oh Arnie, well. So really? Was, well, that was a, a robotic fart. But. I know, but really, I mean, I thought this was a really classy episode on farts, and here Arnie had to come and stink up the joint. It doesn't really smell. I mean, it just it smells like a, a train passing in a subway or something, you know, kind of ozone yeah, it's not smell. That bad. Yeah, not Still. that bad, really. But don't do it again. Okay. Here's some mail. 
from our robot. Uh, this one is from Adam. Adam writes in. He's responding to, responding to our episode Eaten Alive, where we talked about the, the prospect of being swallowed whole by a sperm whale. And he says, okay, let's say I was swallowed whole by a whale. I'm alive and, un- and uninjured in the pre-stomach. The situation looks grim, but alas, all hope is not lost, because how did I get there? I was inspecting a gaping maw of a giant whale while scuba diving. I have a full tank of air and a very sharp dive knife, as does any diver worth his salt, and a healthy desire to live. What are my chances of jabbing and slicing my way to freedom? Oof. Slim to none? Well, uh, yeah, it's a tough one, because certainly those uh, the squid that are uh, being swallowed by the sperm whale, they have rather uh, tough beaks. So there's but they don't have any bones otherwise, so they yeah. can kind of, they're sort of gelatinous in the way that they can contort their bodies. Yeah, but they could, uh, they, they have the ability to, to use that beak on, uh, on the predator. They're able to, uh, to use their, um, their, their little suction, uh, cups with the, with the, the sharp things. And then you see the scars on the sides of, uh, sperm whales where they've, uh, yeah. they've suckered and, and, and picked at them, uh, in this. Well, that's creates the amber geese, right? The, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, yeah. then of course, once they pass the, uh, uh, the beaks on, they, mm-hmm. they, they, as we discussed in that episode, end up, uh, scarring the side of the, uh, the intestinal walls. So. I, I feel like if you were to, to try to use that knife and fight your way out, that you're just, that's gonna cause the sperm whale to really gnash its teeth even more. Yeah. And, and chaos would ensue. Yeah. Now. It hasn't already. Yeah, I'm thinking that, I mean, certainly you're not gonna cut your way out. No. I guess the, the only, the, the only possibility here was if you somehow create enough of a disturbance to where it vomits you. Oh, right. So yeah. <laughs> if you could just stick your finger down its throat. Yeah, Make or I think uh, I think Pinocchio escaped by start. They started a little fire, right, and the smoke mm-hmm. builds up, and then then the the creature sneezes everyone free. So this is kind of you. Obviously, you're not going to start a fire in there. No. Um, but if you were to stab away and start stabbing the sides, would you possibly be able to get the sperm whale to spit you up? Well, I, 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 I tend to doubt it. If you had a little pocket of poison, but then you're going to expose yourself to that poison as well, right? I'm trying to think of ways that you could yeah. make it regurgitate. Hmm. I don't know. I bet, uh, I bet you guys out there might have some ideas. Yeah, think it over. I, I would like to, to hear some people's thoughts on that. And hey, man, you know, we get a spare moment here and there. Maybe I'll, uh, I'll try and contact an expert on this. Oh, yeah, nice. Someone who's survived being <laughs> swallowed by a whale. Yeah. All right, there you go. Everything you may or may not have wanted to know about cutting the cheese, breaking the wing, crop dusting, farting, latest, my friends. Um, if you would like to know more about some of the episodes that we create, and I'm talking about uh, podcast episodes as well as video, make sure that you visit StuffToBlowYourMind.com. You will find everything under the sun related to what we do there. You can also visit us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you have an email, you want to share some of your latest thoughts with us, we're not scared. You can do that at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.